I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back aboard the Starship Texas for the 146th installment of the Text Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we have deep talks about Star Trek, where we have deep dives into Deep Space Nine, currently talking about DS9 Season 4. We're doing our second of three parts on uh, that season. It's it's fascinating because... uh... Every part that we've been doing has is so strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, season four is is uh, where shit really uh, gets going on that show. You know, I love DS9. It's my favorite Trek show, and I'm watching it for the 47th time. Uh, Dave mm-hmm. here is watching it for the first time, so we're coming at it with two different perspectives. Yeah. I, it's not like I, I've got a few a few with this time that I've got some criticisms of, a few that I thought were on the weaker side or dragged or whatever. Um, but yeah, by and large. Uh, people were telling the truth when they said that this is like like things really get going, and to me, it's not just because of the meta plot. I also just feel like the writing takes a surge forward. So, uh, so that's that's been uh, really pretty exciting to experience the first time. As you know, Fathery, I'm starting to be a lot more cautious about spoilers as I've become invested in the characters, and so my old casual, oh, I don't mind like knowing what happens in season five or whatever. I'm I got to tamp down on that now, and I'd be like, no, shut up. <laughs> uh well i only flat out dislike one episode in season four uh, but it's not one we've talked about yet that'll be in our part three of this uh series uh however when we get to season five i don't dislike any of those episodes i think all 26 are at least uh okay there are at least hater decent. hater dave is gonna find like two to dislike but still you know these 26 episode seasons they're hard to do it's hard to be consistently good that many episodes it's true but it's also something they're really pretty admirable about and as as you know i became kind of acutely aware you know working through several seasons of the newer serial era of discovery and picard is that they do lack some advantages that you get when you have when you can have 26 episodes to breathe and let things slowly build and not be as focused on a singular story like there's actually tons of advantages um but god damn it's long (laughs) well the episodes we're going to be talking about today will cover our man bashir which i count as episode 10 because i count way of the warrior as two episodes but we're gonna go from our man bashir until rules of engagement so let's just start off right off the bat with our man bashir A transporter accident replaces the characters in Bashir's secret agent holosuite program with the 
physical forms of the station's senior staff. So Dave, here we have a combination of a uh, transporter accident, a holodeck accident, and James Bond. Uh, how yes. did you like that combination? Uh, I liked it super well. It was a fantastic fucking episode. <laughs> it was, um, you know, I, I hadn't quite put together that it was transporter and uh, holodeck or hollow suite uh, glitch until you pointed it out uh, off mic a few like a week ago when I watched it. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, this is the best kind of contrived. Uh, when basically the story is so fun, you like instinctively want to play along, I think. Well, I think the contrivances actually make a lot of sense. You know, like having to do like an emergency beam out because some terrorists blow up your runabout. Like, okay, that's that sounds like uh, some extreme circumstances. And then the computer is struggling to maintain their their patterns. Like, okay, like... I, I can understand like a computer would require a lot of storage. It should they should say storage, not memory. By the way, memory is RAM. They're, they should be talking about like their hard drive. Yes, the um, Hollow Suite is storing the patterns of uh, all of the uh, you know sort of lead cast, dropping them in as characters into it, uh, into his James Bond esque uh, program, and he cannot shut it down. That's the big thing. It's like if they get killed in the thing, right, they could potentially – the computer might delete them. Um, and if he shuts it down, it might not understand to keep the patterns or whatever, uh, and they, they could actually essentially die then until, until what, Eddington? Yeah. Finally being more useful than ever before uh, <laughs> until he gets things fixed. Um, and, of course, with uh, really Rom coming through uh, in the clutch. Well, Eddington – I guess knows some engineering as well as security stuff because he can, it's like whenever O'Brien's unavailable, he can step in and do like the engineering stuff. We saw him do a bit of that in rejoined when uh, Dax's ex almost died in that plasma fire on the defiant. But I also be think, like uh, Jordy and just switch departments. <laughs> I, I also think that that makes a little bit more sense that the hollow suite and quarks would do some weird stuff than maybe the holodeck on the flagship of Starfleet in the next generation. Yeah. Because as, as they show here, you know, like quark is always doing a shitty job of maintaining his hollow suite. Cause he's a cheap ass. And there's a, like a spatula being used as a plasma conduit and stuff like right. that. Uh, you know, the other genius thing I thought in this episode was in fact, the inclusion of Garrick, uh, aside from the fact that he's always a great character just to have around, uh, the fact that he is a spy master and he's like living through this fantasy spy world um, uh, is is great. It allows him to provide a running snarky commentary that uh, just like kind of takes it to a next level, I feel like. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. Just like his whole observation throughout the, the entire episode where he's like, oh, so people think this is what being a uh, operative <laughs> for an intelligence agency would actually be like or even like when he sees the things that that julian bashir secret agent is given like that uh apartment in hong kong and the valet mona loves it with very right. james bondian style name he's like oh i i clearly joined the wrong in intelligence agency right it allows them to embrace the uh all the tropes of bond uh for the show while also saying like uh having somebody who's I don't know, he's like be the hater person who'd be like, really a spy who's well-known? What? That doesn't make any sense. And, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a line he drops where he just kind of sums it up. He's like, kiss the girl, get the key. They never taught me that in the Obsidian Order. 
<laughs> it's uh, it's good. Right at the very beginning, he's laughing at again, very James Bondian when Bashir kills the dude with the champagne bottle. Yeah. Or I don't know if he kills him, but disables him. Yeah. <laughs> They're like right at the very beginning, Derek is like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He couldn't really. But, it, you know, it, it reminded me of the opening in, in Goldfinger when he sees like the reflection of the yeah. dude in the in the girl's eye and, and then uh, electrocutes him in the bathtub. You know, shocking. And like know. myself, uh, Ron Moore, who wrote this one, I, I, I think has even uh, said on record, he's more a fan of the Sean Connery Bond stuff, which is what i think of when i think of james bond i think i like those those first uh few from dr no until we get on her majesty's secret service no that one's not connery but is that same style uh those first five are kind of what i think of as bond and i love that they made it a period piece where they are going back in time to the 1960s it's a fun use of the hollow suite and more importantly than the contrivances of how they justify the story and how they they create the scenario what i think was more important was that they did something a little different than oh the safety protocols are down we can't end the program you know we we can't really do that same thing again uh unfortunately voyager will do a story like that even after this but uh, i prefer the more creative deep space nine take here we're to make it a little different we're to put like their own little spin on it they have their cast of characters playing these bond archetypes where we have major kira playing the kgb uh colonel anastasia kamananoff o'brien as falcon he's kind of like the uh he's kind of like the odd job he's like that sub boss like jaws who could be in multiple movies he'll just go work for whoever the new bond villain is yeah more Uh, like the hitman style you know we had uh, dax as professor honeybear and Worf as kind of like a Casino Royale, um, Le Chief inspired dude with a French name. Uh, yeah, Duchamp. Duchamp. Okay, I struggle. Yeah, I, I struggle with French. French. The French language makes no sense to me. I probably butchered uh, it a little bit, but it's in that ballpark. But the 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 best one, the one that really takes the cake, that I think everyone mm-hmm. has, unless you just can't deal with the the over the top performance. But I, I I think otherwise you you have to say this one is just like the highlight of the episode. Avery Brooks's Cisco playing. Dr. Hippocrates Noah as the big villain. Yes, Dr. Noah. <laughs> well, he also, um, he's also trying to, you know, flood the earth. Like, like it's, so it's like biblical Noah. Yeah, uh, I hadn't actually thought about that. Uh, it, it seems obvious, I, but I was only thinking of the pun. But yes, that's it's great. Uh, Hippocrates as the first name is is an awesomely ridiculous Bond style addition to it. Yeah, yeah I mean it's also it ridiculous to be named Mona loves it. When Worf first showed up in the casino, puffing on a cigar, and you know, kind of very in command of the situation, obviously malevolent. Uh, I just like started laughing in a in a good way. Like I was just like, yeah, this is gonna be good. <laughs> it was like a Bondian thing where he's like, oh, I can just get five million francs by playing a uh, baccarat with with this dude. Bashir seems to know all. He knows the tropes well enough that uh, he can just kind of um, uh, lean into it and be as do the, have the same confidence Bond would because he kind of knows that uh, he's gonna be able to. Uh, to to pull off the crazy shit <laughs> yeah so it, it would actually make for a pretty good like james bond video game i think if this was like a real experience you could go yeah. on yeah totally uh, what i i really enjoy is kind of the the tension between garrick and bashir where garrick makes it very clear 
he is not going to risk his life to save these people to the point where Dr. Bashir literally shoots Garrick, you know, just kind of grazed his neck and, and Garrick's like, yeah. you almost killed me. And Bashir's like, how do you know? Like, I wasn't trying to do that. There, there's not too much hard drama in the episode because you know, they're not going to kill off like Cisco by having a computer glitch do it. But, um, by having an actual little bit of a, a moral quandary with, uh, Garrick, like, sorry, we got to cut our losses. That's what being, you know, a real spy is about. And that's what we're like, just being smart is about. He's like, so instead of risking us all dying, let's have a few people die and close the program. <laughs> it does give a little bit of weight, uh, you know, just, just enough to, uh, that, that you, you take it seriously. And, you know, the, the lighthearted play of play acting of it all, uh, isn't completely just, just devoid of any, any weight. Yeah. And, and you know, it does make sense that Garrick would be pragmatic and morally ambiguous enough that he would, he would uh, make that call. Uh, but when they, when they do go uh, from their when they escape from being imprisoned to go to stop or I guess they don't really stop them, but they go to confront Dr. Noah. It starts playing the deep space nine theme music, but in like a James Bondian style. And I, I love that so much. That is really cool. Uh, the, you know, throughout they, of course, did musical homages to the style of the Bond movies. That's a very signature style. That is another yeah. reason why I I, I love right. those films. Uh, yeah, it's ja it's it's like a jazzy and and like kind of brash. Uh, you know, it's it's meant to reflect Bond's brashness. I I actually don't have a ton more to say about the episode because like almost all of the funnest stuff is really just great style and watching the characters choose scenery. I liked uh, seeing um. Nana visitor in uh, like lingerie and stuff <laughs> about like... that about that i just <laughs> yeah want to point out this is around the same time that sadig impregnated nana visitors so uh, i don't i don't know if her wardrobe in this episode might have inspired that event you know but it's, uh, this is yeah, around that they, time that that would have happened <laughs> they're like all right that's that that's a rat people and he's they just sneak off as they are he's all handsomely dressed she's sexily dressed what's what's gonna happen yeah, and uh, now there's uh, some uh, some 24 year old dude because of that. <laughs> um, no, that's uh, that's that's cool though. Um, I'm I'm happy for them uh, uh, retroactively. Um, I also did like that. The one other thing I kind of wanted to mention was there's a kind of a neat bit that's that that's part of like a, a meta plot sort of or the where Bashir basically has to stall for time and he does it by like enacting. Uh, Dr. Noah's plan. Uh, you know, it'd be like James Bond hitting the the launch missile for, you know, one of his bad guys and blowing up the earth because he needs to buy time. <laughs> it's it's a nice bit of a nice final bit of like kind of ridiculousness uh, that does, you know, expose the that yes, of course it's all a fiction. Uh and 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 Dr. Noah has to re deal with the realization that uh, he's like, "Oh, my plan came off." <laughs> it's uh yeah one of uh one of many neat moments throughout the whole episode it's when when dr bashir says at the end uh a uh, secret agent julian bashir will return or whatever it's a yeah, little bit yeah. of like eh, not really we kind of get a, another glimpse in a future episode but uh mgm wrote a very very angry letter to paramount when this episode came out and it was basically like never ever do that again well next we have a big two-parter uh, Dave, they they kind of tend to do like one of these like every season in the middle of the season. You know, season three we had that 
Garrick and Odo adventure with the Obsidian Order and Tal Shiar with Improbable Cause and the Die is Cast. Here they do something similar with Homefront and then Paradise Lost. They will do something like this again in Season 5. Do they uh, consistently call them, uh, have like different names for the episodes so it's never like so-and-so part one and then so-and-so part two? Yeah. As someone coming into it late in the game, I appreciate that um, because... It means that I'm surprised when these things happen. Um, uh, you know, I'm just like watching an episode and I'm like, oh, wow, this is intense. How are they going to solve all this? And then suddenly I'll get that like to be continued. I'm like, oh, cool, uh, which is not always my case. I don't often like sort of two parters in stories that have uh, or in series that have tended at um, episodic style. Um, I think they can be a little bit bloated. But um, D Deep Space Nine has a pretty good track record. Well, the uh, synopses on these read, Cisco is recalled to San Francisco after a terrorist bombing reveals the changelings have reached Earth. And then we have, while Starfleet tightens security measures on Earth, Cisco and Odo discover that Admiral Layton is deviously plotting to take over the planets. So we basically have a tragic event on Earth. The changelings blow up a conference between the Starfleet and Romulans, and there is a Tholi in there too. That was kind of cool, even though we don't see them in that footage. But they were blown up by some changelings, and a paranoia ensues, and some very reactionary admiral tries to have a coup to overthrow the president of the Federation and, and enact martial law on Earth and and invoke uh, uh, security at all cost over any civil liberties and uh, prepare for. The, the changelings with that approach. And there's a conflict with Cisco and our heroes. Every once in a while, I think I, I find that the, the resolution doesn't quite live up to the buildup. And that's, to some degree, that's me on just a lot of fiction. I, uh, <laughs> I tend to like the rising action in stories over resolution, and resolutions are tough. Um, uh, but, uh, but I was enjoying it throughout. You know, it was, it was great to finally see... Uh, Cisco's dad. We get Joseph in in these, right? Especially because he had like played a key role, even though it was off screen, in um, the Visitor. He's great, and the actor who that they bring in did a fantastic job. He's he's in Star Trek four and six as Admiral Cartwright. I think the brilliant thing in his performance it comes in in that scene where he he cuts his hand, and Cisco, as well as the audience, is kind of suspecting it to be changeling goo and not blood. Yeah. And then, like, he when he freaks out, when he, like, yells at his son, you know, Benjamin Lafayette Cisco, what the hell are you doing? And he's all offended by it. But when he goes on, like, that rant about about the, uh, the changelings, it's very easy to play that too hysterical, I think. And he does a good job of, like, you know, walking right up to that line, but not not losing the seriousness of it. You know, it would have been very easy to be like mm -hmm. Christopher, Christopher Lloyd, Lloyd, like 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 Doc Brown from Back to the Future, be like, "Oh my God, Marty, the changelings are everywhere," and just kind of like like ham it up a little bit. And they, they you know, they, he 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 keeps it like under control. Um, so I I really enjoy that, and also just I think it's real cool that this dude is just a uh, a chef that in this yeah. this future post capitalist Earth where people kind of just can explore their passions he's like oh yeah i just want to run a restaurant because that's what i love to do and i'm gonna cook creole food all the time it seems like a life well lived 
like it doesn't feel like oh because he didn't do the great things that sometimes they have on Star Trek you know the I need to be explore something or discover this or that that he just sort of brought comfort to people's lives or whatever it still seems like he's a happy person and yeah again a life well lived and it suggests that you know there's a lot of other people you know pursuing these passions either like like replicators are really convenient but it's not as good as like like some good old-fashioned like home-cooked food so you know yeah there would be like some people that would want to like you know catch the shrimp and then someone else who wants to cook them and you know stuff like like actually like grow the vegetables and and uh some poor that. uh kid uh, uh basically a um uh, grandson to chop the vegetables <laughs> for you <laughs> as uh, jake is clearly like borderline terrorized of doing uh <laughs> what well, no, uh his dad tells him like oh you're not gonna chop vegetables anymore like you're not a kid anymore you're, he's gonna want you to wait tables <laughs> yeah. their family has a bit of a tough work ethic <laughs> uh, but yeah you know the his um uh, his the granddad i think he exudes that kind of quality of sort of a uh uh, sort of a sly patriarch of the family like you know really good-hearted guy but you know a little used to uh, maybe a little in love with his own voice sometimes uh a little bit of an ego it, like in a pretty reasonable way but but it's it makes for a rich character i, I like it and i can also see why uh ben cisco gets frustrated with his dad you know for not taking his medicine and stuff like that he's he's got sort of i guess what i would say are somewhat standard aging issues <laughs> I like when Jake tells him, like, the doctor told you you have to keep your weight up. And then, like, he gets, like, really mad. He's like, he's like, no, you listen here, grandson. Like, I don't I don't care that you're, like, seven feet tall at this point. You ain't going to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is something that Deep Space Nine just does. It's, like, it's casually really cool a lot. Uh, so let me just quick throw these out, and then we'll jump into sort of the more key plot stuff. But, like, seeing Cisco's dad was a big thing. Seeing Nog again on Earth was a big thing. I got to finally see the scene where Worf <laughs> brings up the Klingon gods. I'd, I'd seen clips of it before, but I'd never actually watched the scene where he talks about ancient Klingon warriors killing their own gods because they were more trouble than they were worth. Made the episode for me. I liked a little bit with Kira being disappointed that the prophets hadn't revealed themselves yet, which will have relevance later on in the season you know she's clearly some of the uh, uh bajorans are getting a little anxious they want to see the emissary doing more quark's story about trying to share their anxiety about earth by telling a story about ferenginar where it, he was off planet during like a what was it a financial collapse yeah like, yeah, like a stock market crash yeah um and he's like he's like i feel your pain <laughs> And then just the general paranoia of it, of like the weird, why is the wormhole opening and closing? What's going on? Like, it's just, I, I was just bombarded. I felt like with like neat stuff and cool ideas throughout that whole first episode. Um, so uh, like, yeah, that's, it's just Deep Space Nine quality beating me up. <laughs> well, I, I feel like it's such a clever idea to have all of this be kicked off by 27 people killed on earth like that's like their big 9-11 event is is yeah. 27 people killed i think uh, so many like modern shows would would try to like make it over the top where like a whole city gets blown up or so it's got to you know dialed Absolutely. up to 11 it's got to it's we got to like really just like shock the audience 
And, and and here with it just being something smaller like that and everyone being like, oh, my God, how could this happen on a place like Earth? It, it really conveys well, the, this future world. I, I felt like that because um, part of it is is just the way I think about the fiction of Star Trek and that I'm just not used to them kind of thinking the way Deep Space Nine thinks sometimes. Um, I expected all of the D- Dominion War stuff uh, – to, to really kind of take place in and around the station and, you know, related, you know, systems or near, nearby sectors, I guess I should say. Um, so I was actually a little shocked when relatively early on that Earth became the target of attack and that it was like a sort of terrorist attack and not just uh, because it like. I hadn't been thinking of just how insidious the changelings could be. I was like, oh, shit, they're, they are going to Earth like right away. <laughs> I wasn't the only person who did this. A lot of Star Trek fans were talking about it. But uh, a few years after this aired, when we get to the Bush years here in America, and when we had our big terrorist attack in 2001, mm-hmm. and then the fallout after that, and you know stuff like the Patriot Act, a lot of stuff going on then was very instrumental in the, the formation of a lot of my political philosophies. And I remember being very critical early on of the of the Bush administration and of the the war on terror and uh very concerned about a lot of that stuff and actually like comparing it to like oh yeah this was like in season 4 DS9 when uh Admiral Layton tried to uh take control and and, and they they do kind of get in the philosophy of like security versus freedom or liberty, liberty. yeah and I don't think that's always like a great way to frame it in in real life and that's a little bit more complicated than well, in this it makes episode, it sound but... like it's binary and that, you know, well, maybe there are times when, you know, when there is a lot of this, you know, Russiagate stuff going on. There were there were like CIA talking heads that would go like talk to news correspondents about like, oh, well, you know, like everyone wants us to give them more freedom. But then, you know, something like this happens where hackers are influencing our elections. And, you know, like you have to remember, like, we, you know, we, we need heightened security and stuff. And it, it's. And it's like, no, that's that's just the propaganda that those people put out to to try to increase more power for those entities because that's their that's what those things are designed to do. And it, it, it's interesting seeing it here through uh, Admiral Layton, who you can kind of like get on board, you know, what he's doing, uh, and until people start getting killed. But you can kind of like sympathize with him. He's not like one of these crazy bad morals. He's not like yeah. a you know like over the top nuts or anything like. He he's inspired a bunch of loyalty. He has all these people from their their old ship, the Okinawa, and good use of continuity to, uh, referencing the Zenkathy War. And we get his, I guess, second in command, uh, Commander Benteen, who we see commanding the Lakota, uh, mm-hmm. played by the same actress who played Leia Brahms. But oh, uh, she seemed familiar. So one of the things that I remember always loving in this is that little bit of battle we get between the Lakota and the Defiant. Because mm-hmm. the, the Lakota starts attacking the Defiant, and that's when the ramifications are really hitting. When, okay, like, Starfleet people are going to start shooting other Starfleet people at this point. Yeah, and that, there's casualties. W- when the camera pushes in on Worf, and you have O'Brien asking, Commander, what are we going to do? It's like, 
Okay, you, like, this is the guy in the next generation who always wanted to fight, always wanted to blow stuff up, was always wanting to take, like, the more aggressive approach. And so here, like, we get to see him actually be in the commander chair, and someone asks him, what are we going to do? Like, like you know exactly what he's going to say, and he says, <laughs> we fight. And just, like, that big dramatic moment before, like, the Defiant starts, like, opening fire, I thought it was, like, so cool. But, yeah, and... Another interesting thing, we're doing some some streams on YouTube talking about uh, Babylon 5. In mm-hmm. a few weeks, we're going to do Babylon 5 Season 4. But the actor who plays Admiral Layton, he also played a similar character, General Haig, on Babylon 5, who was Sheridan's boss, and he was kind of instrumental in... I don't want to spoil that show for people who haven't seen it, but... Would they have, like, some circumstances with, like, their president and some of, like, the... Poly- he, like, he... he, he plays kind of a similar role except a little bit more heroic over there um when, when they really do that stuff in season three of b5 the general Haig actor was unavailable because his agent accidentally double booked him and he was busy shooting this admiral layton stuff that's uh funny he was um double booked playing a character similar to another character yeah that's why they had to have like that that captain be like oh sorry uh sorry john uh, General Haig died, but here's what he was gonna do, so I'm gonna come, like, do that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, as far as to the, the, the credibility of the threat, the sort of science fiction trappings of the changelings does make it feel pretty heightened. That the blood test does feel like a necessary thing, uh, that they could, you know, if, like, a high number of them were on Earth, rapidly sow chaos that could, like, really like sort of plunge things into a into a bad state um but they do and i was thinking of the twilight zone episode uh, the monsters are due on maple street is that the famous one yeah where they are able to bring about paranoia and self-destruction really by hinting at their presence they don't even really have to take action and as the one changeling tells um cisco later on uh, is it in the form of o'brien says that they really only have four infiltrators. I thought it was interesting that he was seemingly being honest with him. It's a little cliched, but I do kind of like heart-to-heart talks between enemies sometimes. It's handled right. I think it can be very strong drama, and I thought this was, was well handled. But and, and we still don't know if he's telling the truth. Like, it, for all we know, he could, be the, the, he could be the only one. Or there could be many more, and he's downplaying yeah. it in this moment of seeming candidness. So that, uh, like, if they, like, if plot A fails that they don't keep maintain their vigilance, you know, or whatever, because they're like, okay, it's just four. Um, but, um, but yes, uh, it, it's, uh, maybe it, like a slight risk to their thematics when you have something as fairly genuinely scary as the changelings would be. <laughs> and what you were mentioning about the blood test, I love that Joseph Sisko, he's the one who points out, even though you'd think someone in Starfleet might've thought about this, like, but he points oh. out, you know, what if the changelings are just carrying around other people's blood and they can just, like, let some out whenever they need to? Like, what if these blood tests gross. aren't even working? Yeah, like, they have, like, just a little internal blood pocket of somebody else's blood that they can extrude on command. Uh, yeah, no, I thought that was, like, both terrifying and, like, a very smart idea. You'd think there might be some way to, like, scan the blood, see if it's fresh or not, but, I mean, maybe the changelings have a way to, like, you know, maintain that blood. And do you, right. Dave, do you recall, we've seen, like, a certain group of people who just pull out a duck tog and cut their hand open, yep. and they don't really seem to scan it or anything, so just keep in mind that maybe some uh, some of the Klingon blood tests maybe not have been very accurate. Mm. 
Interesting, um, interesting. But uh, the the Nog stuff you mentioned was really cool. I love that the show continues to find ways to use Nog. That's why when he was going off to Starfleet, I was like, don't worry. Like, we're still going to see Nog. Like, he's not going to be erased from the show or anything. And that Red Squad stuff they set up with, like, this elite group of cadets. And we actually meet one of them. What was his name? Riley? Something. We, we see that kid again. And we see, we see Red Squad again in, in the future. It felt like they were setting up something that would continue past this episode. I do like when they fake the blood test to arrest Cisco when they figure out, like, oh, he's on to us. He's figured out our coup attempt. And Cisco mm-hmm. sees, oh, they just, like, made me look like a changeling in front of the president. And he doesn't even try to fight it. Like, he's he's smart enough to know, like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to win this battle right here. But in his frustration, when he just throws that pad down on the desk. Yeah. I just really liked that moment. You know, I like the guy who played the president. He had a he had a commanding air about him. Um, and I don't um, like this president. Well, yeah, as a you're talking about as a president, he's yeah. He I, I would vote against weak, him. He seems rather weak-willed. He's a cow. He's like a, his species is literally called a grazerite, and he just looks like a giant cow. But he's made to be like this very like peaceful person. He's he's like I didn't even want to be president, and he kind of gets like pushed around. You know, like when Leighton, Odo, and Cisco walk in there, they're like, "Look at how bad the changelings are. You need to be tougher on security." And he's kind of like, "Oh, okay, I guess you're right." And he he does stand up to Cisco at one point when. When Cisco tries to tell him that, like, there's this this coup attempt, and he's like, are you out of your mind? Like, Starfleet trying to overthrow the president of the Federation. But other than that, he does seem like kind of a, a pushover. And he might be a good peacetime president, but as as Leighton points out, you know, like, he's he's not the one we need in office right now. Yeah, what I, what I liked about it is that I thought that actor did a good job of portraying someone who was weak. And, and, and like, a nuanced—he had, he had, like, a sort of commanding presence when he was around— and he felt it's that I mean it's the thing of real life politics. He felt presidential, even though he was clearly you know going kind of where the wind blew. Nice side character, nice supporting character. Uh, Father, the only thing I'd like to add is a very small thing uh, about this two-parter, which which like I said, I was a little disappointed in the second half just because it wasn't hitting me with as much innovation, and I did see the broad arc of you know kind of where it was headed, um, but. My minor complaint is that Dax messing with the uh, placement of furniture in Odo's apartment is very not cool. Oh, I love that. I love that because that uh, reminds us off the bat at the beginning of the episode in a very subtle, casual way of Odo and his people and their their love for order. Uh, that's that's a fair point. I'm just saying that uh, that's that's a very uh, very uh, lame invasion of privacy, and I don't like it. Okay, season four, episode 13, Crossfire. Odo must face his feelings for Kira when she falls in love with First Minister Shakar, her former resistance leader. So we have the return of of Shakar, the farmer turned freedom fighter turned First Minister of Bajor. And uh, Kira are now an item. We now have like a new new Kira relationship. Rest in peace, Burrell. But you've been replaced with a less boring character. I was as I was watching this. There's something something Gull uh, Ducat or like Ducat, but he was bounced. He was he was demoted. But in a few episodes, we'll comment on. I was thinking, oh, you know, because I know Kira, uh, I know that she's not like some I don't know gold digger or you know power like trying to move through the ranks of power uh, kind of person. Uh, but she does tend to date the most powerful men on her planet. <laughs> and I was thinking that if I was like one of her political enemies, I'd, I'd like go after her with that. If I was Kai Wynn, because I'm like, oh, you are dating basically the equivalent of the 
of a cardinal, I guess, before something like that, or a bishop with Vedic yeah. Burrell. And then now she's dating like planetary president. <laughs> oh, Kira. He's not like the most interesting guy in the world. I was joking that he is more interesting than Burrell. But I, I, I do tend to like him a little bit more. This salt of the earth dude who would have just probably lived like this content life, you know, working on his farm, then had to become this, the soldier during the occupation. And he's a good hearted dude. And now he's uh, put in charge of the entire planet. I, I just, I just kind of like that on a conceptual level. Yeah, there's a montage of him going through the station and he's kind of interacting with the people. And the, even though security is like, hey, you need to chill it out, dude. But he's kind of interacting with them, and he's he's very casual and easy with all the Bajorans he sees on the station. He definitely doesn't put on airs. He seems very genuine. Um, you know, he 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 conveys that salt of the earth kind of thing. Uh, the star of this episode, though, I think, is Odo and Renee's performance. You just see like so many like sad Odo faces throughout this, where he's he's watching <laughs> the. The courtship between Shakar and this this woman that he loves, but he has no idea how to like s act on 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 those feelings or say or do anything about it. And and when when Shakar is like confessing, like his like I've always considered her a valued friend, but I think we there could be so much more, and I'm kind of scared to take the next step forward. He's saying all the things that Odo is feeling, and Odo just has to listen like this other guy, this like handsome, confident, good looking dude. He's <laughs> like say all this stuff like how how Odo's just, I'm just like this weird little alien shape shifting blob mm -hmm. of goo like you know how am I supposed to like compete with this guy it's it's really heartbreaking to watch this and and the, the Quark Odo stuff where Quark is his his greatest enemy it's, becomes his greatest confidant yeah and he's not a great confidant about it but he is his only confidant about it um, that was my favorite part of the episode in which um, Odo's simpin for kira is at its peak um i did not love the episode it, it felt like this episode was vibing on that sort of 90s or early 2000s poor odo's been friend zoned so it's, it's a pretty standard feeling for i think for shy dudes i've felt it as a shy dude in my life but it's also one of those things that i think um sort of aged poorly as far as like uh poor odo when like in fact some you know like a good deal of this is kind of on Odo to have uh, to have maybe um, thought about in a somewhat deeper way than like I deserve her and uh, or like just I I, what he, a sad. I don't sack think he I does am. though. I don't. I don't think Odo ever expresses like any feeling of like entitlement or anything. I guess. I guess he's mostly just sort of doing self-loathing. Um, that's. Um, he does do that. But uh, I like he, he, should advice. Go, he should go on a message board and find the future incels <laughs> who would tell him that uh, that uh, she's playing him. But he he doesn't do, he doesn't like have he doesn't seem to have like any resentment. I think he has frustration at the situation, but he doesn't seem to like blame it on Kira or even blame it on Shakar, honestly. And and I actually think Quark kind of in a rare move, <laughs> to be honest. I think he actually gives some good advice here when he tells him like like look, you know, just like throwing a fit up here, <laughs> smashing all your furniture is not going to solve anything. You need to either act, tell her how you feel, and act on on your feelings. Or get over it and move on. Yeah, and... I, I do agree. Uh, Quark is on it, uh, was, was correct there. I I liked that in the end that he says uh, something like, um, 
uh, Odo says like, oh, it's funny. For a minute, I thought I was you were talking to me as a friend, and and Quark is just like, nah. <laughs> they don't want to like, admit their pretty, respect for each other. Yeah, like like it came through that he did, but it also was pretty harsh that he couldn't say it. But yeah, uh, you know, I will say this: I, I didn't love the episode, um, uh, but always Rene Abergenois, uh, his performance as Odo is fantastic. He does a great job. I just for for I, I was kind of bugged by the thematics throughout it. It just felt dated to me. And Odo kind of pays Quark back by doing the soundproofing, but then he won't admit that he's like, oh, "I'm just having my floor reinforced. It's just a coincidence." Right, right. Soundproofing. Where Quark had been uh, griping basically about his shape changing antics and all his test runs of shape changes, uh, basically stampeding around his ceiling, which Odo, as much as says he deliberately stationed his like yeah. quarters above Quark just to mess with him. Um, uh, you know, Father Eight, I, I'm going to rescind my that's messed up that um, that uh, Dax was pranking him in the previous episode because basically it's uh, it's only fair if he was pranking Quark. <laughs> yeah, Odo was trolling Quark. Yes. Uh, but yeah, just, just Quark is a smart dude and sure. they got to do things like, you know, remind us that he, he is like on the ball sometimes. So I think like, when they do that reveal, when Quark's like like catering the the Hasperat during that uh, conference or whatever, we see like Quark notice like the wheels turning and his devious little Ferengi mind. He's like, "Oh yeah, I got Odo's number. I know what's up with him." I like when Quark is always like a little sharper than things uh, look. Sometimes, you know, he's often also kind of blinded by the sort of traditional Ferengi interests. But uh, but I do I, I think he's at his coolest when he he surprises us a little bit. I think the my favorite scene as far as sad sack Odo was when Kira notices uh, like he's not wearing a belt with his uniform and she's like oh I always kind of like that and he's like oh really and then he like reforms it and it's clearly he's like you know it's this small moment of like the closest he's come to kind of catching her attention to talking in some way about physical attractiveness in the ballpark of of something you know that a partner might say and so uh it's 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 both sad and like cute in a way that he's trying to but, but that, <laughs> trying has, a, that to... has a dramatic payoff because then at the end he when drops he, it yeah he drops it and that's he goes to care and you feel like he almost you know tells her you know like i'm in love with you Norris, and and he, like he, he's thinking about it He's saying I have something to tell you. What does he say instead? I forget. That he's he has to cancel their their Tuesday morning meetings, which were, weren't really meetings. They would just kind of gossip about the station. But that was like the yeah. highlight of his week. That was like he he made her coffee just right the way she likes it, and he would like even like turn the handle to where it's like pointing at her chair when she'd come to sit in. Like, you can tell like oh yeah, he looks forward to every Tuesday morning at eight hundred hours to have like this this meeting with Kira where he can just hang out with the this this woman that he's secretly in love with and spend time with her and uh, yeah and like he he's he's like i can't even do that anymore just have to like shut down this which isn't like the healthiest way to go about you know processing this and moving on but that, that's the way that he does it he has no like emotional maturity because like he doesn't he didn't go through adolescence like he didn't go through like yeah. asking a girl to the dance in eighth grade and like getting rejected and having to like learn how like he he didn't have any of that and He's not the guy who can, like, you know, talk to people about it openly. He's such, like, a private, closed-off person. He has that, that funny conversation with Worf about uh, 
being an inhospitable host so that people stop coming to visit you and leave you alone. <laughs> it was funny to see them bonding over keeping people out of their quarters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, now we're at Season 4, Episode 14, Return to Grace. Kira and Gold Ducat chase the Klingon Bird of Prey that destroyed a Cardassian outpost where Cardassian and Bajoran representatives were holding a conference. Uh, Dave, this episode is very much a continuation of an earlier Season 4 episode, Indiscretions, which introduced sure. Tora Ziel, the daughter of Ducat. Um, now we get to see the ramifications of that and uh, again force Kira to be with this uh, dude that she hates and go on a mission with him. Uh, how do you feel about this one? It's just something I occasionally think that they they softened Kira up a little bit, maybe too much, because I felt like her bitterness towards Ducats sort of shouldn't be something that maybe fades so easily. I don't but think it fades, though. She can she gets to points where she can banter with him and like, yeah, she's a little, I guess, standoffish with him. But I feel like she still is giving him a, a good bit of leeway uh, to just kind of casually chat with her when I think she would be like, I don't want to be, I don't want to take this freighter to this meeting that I have to go on with him. Like, I think she'd be kind of more continually pissed just based on the Kira I saw in earlier seasons. I guess I might be influenced by later episodes I've seen. It, it kind of, mm -hmm. it kind of surprised me when you said this before, when we were talking about indiscretions, but mm -hmm. I, because like, I, I know what happens later and, I I never get that feeling that, like Kira has ever like forgiven Ducat or has any type of of um anything other than than hatred or distaste for him. When he makes his pitch to her near the end of like, hey, become a guerrilla fighter with me against the Klingons, it does it is true. After she listens, she kind of like says she was never really considering it, but they at least make it feel like she was, uh, and maybe on some level she was. But what I didn't get out is that, like, overall, I actually, like, it won me over because I thought the writing was strong, and I think that it's a suspenseful plot. Like, I was I was pulled into the story in spite of some reservations about, like, whether I think Kira would or wouldn't do this kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and even in that moment you mention, you know, Dukat's trying to make the case that it would benefit Bajor, and I think she still never considers it, but I think she does, like... Well, I don't know. Maybe that would, you know, maybe stopping the Klingon threat would be a good thing for Bajor. But ultimately, you know, not with him, not with this dude. If that's like a concern you're having, I guess I just want to like tell you, like, you don't have to worry about that. Like, the show begins and ends with, with Kira, like, hating Dakot. And there's never any forgiveness or any of that. She doesn't ever fall in love with him. No, 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 no. That's, that's never going to happen. I'll spoil <laughs> that for you right now. That, that, yeah. That'll never happen. Father, I know she likes powerful men. <laughs> yeah, well, Dukat says that, and he's such a creep. I, I hate Dukat so much in this episode. It's like he's been Facebook stalking her. He he knows stuff about her. He's he's good. He's gone beyond. He is Obsidian Order Facebook stalking her, <laughs> where he like, you know, he wants to throw in her face that the guy she's dating has had a lot of partners, um, and, and stuff like that. It's 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 very creepy, and he's clearly been talking about her to his daughter. Uh, enough to the point where, although, yes, he seems like he's being a good father to her overall, but she's picked up on his interest, and she wants it to happen. She wants the nice lady who helped save her to be her new mom. And I'm like, oh, this is awkward. Yeah, he, like, weaponizes his kid. The only kid he still has in his life, because his, his wife left him. He's like, <laughs> oh, like this this dude is probably, like, banging my wife right now. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
He's. I do enjoy like seeing Dakot like so like depressed. Like that. You're like this is kind of like the the lowest. Uh, that well, yeah, he's just... been busted down to like a, like a freighter captain or like kind of running errands essentially for for Cardassia. Yeah, he he went from being the military advisor to the uh, government, so probably like the if not secretary of defense, then probably like like a a, a general on like the Joint Chiefs. It, at least you know something close to that, and then yeah, here he's he's just like a kind of a glorified bus driver. Like, oh, you need a ride to the Bajoran Cardassian conference? I'm here to pick you up. Even though he probably <laughs> asked for that assignment because he's crushing on on Kira. Yeah, I feel like he had to probably pull some strings to make that happen. It was not a coincidence. Um, he he does kind of get what he wants in a way at the end, which is he gets. In, in a way that, uh, like, the other person crushing on Kira, Odo, uh, dis- decided to step back in the previous episode, he has managed to get a a, a foot in the door uh, of her emotional life by getting his daughter on the station, a daughter that Kira clearly has an investment in. So he's got a he's got an emotional connection with her. As, as, as the planner Cardassian that he is, he probably feels like he's a step closer. He clearly seems to think he can eventually break down her willpower, or at least is living in perpetual hope. I like, I like not liking him. I think he's a great villain. Yeah, I, I agree. They are caught off guard when the the Klingons, you know, dis- destroy the station they were going to, killing both Bajorans and Cardassians. So Kira and right. do have kind of a joint cause. They they both want to put a stop to the Klingons doing this, and the part part of seeing like like Dukat's you know, fall from grace. This episode is called return to grace, but we really experienced the, the fall from grace is when Ducat on his dinky little freighter with the weak ass phasers that don't do anything. When he tries to attack that bird of prey, it's not even like a huge Klingon ship. It's just like a little bird of prey. And the the Klingons don't even want to uh, fire back and they just casually just fly away. He's almost in tears sitting there in his captain's chair. And he's like, shocked by it he's like oh i guess we're not even you know worthy of 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 being blown up by these klingons like he's on like the verge of tears when he's saying that i did think that like i i I like those little bits of realism like yeah the klingons walking away from a battle because they uh it, it seems like there's no honor in it and even early on when there's a bit of exposition going on as to like what's going on uh and bashir is doing a medical exam on kira He's talking about how what the invasion of Cardassia that it, like their healthcare system is in shambles. I don't know if it's from the invasion or the coup, like the Klingon attack or yeah, the coup. It, but... it's, it's from the the Klingons just blowing up a bunch of stuff. Yeah, but it's those kind of little neat little asides that uh, that are adding some bit of complexity to things that we already know. I always that's just I love when DS Nine does that stuff. And I just want to remind everyone that the reason for all this destabilization is from the changeling threat so the 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 dominion is the catalyst that not like is why we had like this cardassian bajoran conference get blown up so it adds to their menace as well that they're kind of behind all of this it's true yeah earth in turmoil uh you know uh cardassia with uh, whole governments overthrown uh klingons on the rampage kittimer accord broken Old hostilities flaring up between the Federation and the Klingons. Uh, it's like, it's a lot uh, for a relatively small number of actions. Um, but that said, they did, um, 
they did destroy the major intelligence agencies of both the Cardassians and the Romulans. So that's that probably was a wild and terrifying wake-up call to the rest of the uh, quadrant. I like that this episode has like the slow talky moments where they actually like explain like the tactics and what they're trying to do and and the neat idea of like Kira having to teach her former fascistic occupiers how to become uh guerrilla resistance fighters and like okay let's just like take one of these uh one of these stations uh guns and and figure out a way to like hook it up in our cargo bay <laughs> and you know we yeah. just we just got to like make this work you know use use what resources we have access to on a pure plot level, that was very satisfying to watch, and it, the actual confrontation with the bird of prey was a cool sequence, like you know, yeah. suspenseful and and very awesome. Kind of Trojan I, you know, horse them, let let, let mm-hmm. them pull us in with the tractor beam, and then shoot them out of the cargo bay. It reminded me of uh, you know Kirk and Khan, uh, of course, when Kirk does the "Here it comes" uh, to <laughs> to Khan. <laughs> we get the introduction of Damar who's kind of like Dukat's right-hand man. Very little to do in this episode. He's just like saying, like, the Klingons are on scanners and stuff like that. But, He's got uh, a thing with Zael, right? Or, like, I felt like they were, there was something. Uh, well, never mind. Oh, I'm, not even going to, I'm not even going to hint at it, but um, I, he he's going to become a much bigger character. I know it doesn't seem okay. like it now, yeah. but... He could be, like, he could be a shapeshifter. He could end up having a thing with Zyal. There's, like, a bunch of different ways I could see this going. I appreciate not uh, not pushing me one way or the other. Dukat uh, pulls this off and, you know, has this intelligence to give back to the Cardassian counselor or whatever. And they don't do anything on it. They don't act on it. And he's really, this is what leads him to want to go and become, like, a guerrilla fighter against the Klingons. And and he says, uh, you know, that, like, he's the only, only real Cardassian left, that they've become too soft. He presented them with a list of, of you know, Klingon targets. Or like, here's where all the Klingon ships, like, right. all this intelligence. And he's like, let's go on the offensive. And they say, no, you can come back and be our military advisor, but we're not going to—I'm going to tell you right now, like, we're not going to go on a full-out offensive assault with the Klingons. And that, he, uh, he didn't like that. That may, uh, in fact, uh, speak to the um, to the wisdom of the civilian government. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of understand, like, Dukat's uh, point of view on it, but he's—I um, I, I get that, like, mentality of, like, you know, very well, if no one's going to do this, I have to just have to do it myself. Sure. Well, it's like Thanos at the end of Age of Ultron. Um, where he pulls out his gauntlet and then like waits like eight more years before he actually does anything. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, but um, I I get that. But yeah, it's cool to see like Ducat like he he craves like getting back everything he's lost and and and, and throughout the show Ducat you know he's all about like um he's got to remind everyone you know I'm the top dog I'm I I am I am the 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 he's like the Cardassian supremacist he's like we're the best people and I'm the best one of these best people. And he, he, he's disgraced. He wants to have his, his title put back in place. And when he has that offered to him, he's like, no, like that's not good enough. I'll just go and, and get it all back my own way and do it myself. But previously, Ducat just kind of showed up to serve whatever role the story needed. And here right. we actually get Ducat with a purpose. We have this rogue Cardassian in command of a small crew on one little Klingon bird of prey. And he's like, okay, my, my crusade now is to drive the Klingons out of Cardassian space. And so that's kind of where Dukat is right now in his, in his arc. Super interesting place to be. And, uh, 
Yeah, it gives the character who's like always been clever but hasn't quite felt like he has that level of agency. It gives him like sort of that full level of autonomy as far as like moving. He's like, I'm moving my own plot forward. I'm not just like here to be the face of Cardassia. Yeah. So and, that is and, that is a cool thing. And they remind us that he's still, you know, really nasty when he blows up the when they do like the beaming switcheroo and they switch ships. Oh yeah, yeah. And that he, was cool. And then he's like, um he's like fire <laughs> yeah You're like th those people like when they like refuse to engage in battle against him like th those klingons like signed their their death sentence base like there there is no way he was gonna like let them live to tell the tale of like the day like they they disgraced gold ducat like he he there's no way he wasn't gonna blow them up like that he's a smart and ambitious bad man are you ready for sons of moog i am Worf's brother, Kern, arrives on the station and asks Worf to kill him. Meanwhile, Klingon ships are detected outside Bajoran space. So here we have the return of Tony Todd playing uh, someone's family member. Kern had showed up in Next Generation? Yes, a couple times. A couple times, okay. Um, I need to go back and revisit these episodes because... Uh, basically, uh, what I remember is watching them just, like, kind of out of context at one point, at least one of them, and I was like, oh, I was surprised how much I liked, uh, Worf's brother, you know, I was just, you know, this surprisingly strong supporting character, and, uh, same case now, I mean, he, sh that he should show up in the same season as, you know, just absolutely killing it as the elder Jake Sisko in, in Visitor, um, I'm, I'm already way on his side and like, I regret that this is, I think maybe Kern's last appearance. They actually like always planned to bring him back after this, but just never got around to it. Right, right. I did read about that. Now that you say that, or I like, I skimmed a bit, little bit about it, but I, I like the episode quite a bit. Um, I, I like, as apparently I'm not the first person to voice this, wasn't wild about the somewhat unusual solution at the ending um i had some issues with that but i can i can kind of work with it i i love seeing kern i think tony todd uh he's like one of the more interesting klingons and a lot of it's his portrayal but i i think kern is an interesting character kind of clearly like sort of less mature than Worf, but like good-hearted but like he's flailing about here he's looking for anything to grab onto please he's like kill me and he's like okay well if not that then I'll try out this other scheme. I'll try and get myself killed. And at some point he just says to Worf, he's like, I'll just do what you say. He's like, tell me what to do. <laughs> and it's really sad. Like, it's so, that's like the saddest thing I feel like I could see of a Klingon is that sort of loss of agency. So, uh, and Tony Todd is good at portraying tragic characters. So. The moment you're talking about where he tells Worf, yeah, just tell me what to do. He, it's when Worf is trying to, like, talk about this and do, like, a little bit more, like, human thing and probably, like, emotionally healthy thing. And, like, mm -hmm. let's, you know, let's talk about it. Let's figure out a solution together. And Kern is just like, like, no, I don't want to talk about it. That's just a human thing. You're the older brother. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I, I don't know if I love Kern quite as much as you. Like, if I made a list of, like, my top ten Klingons, I'm not even sure if he would, like, hit the, the top ten. Nice. I, I never think he, he's terribly interesting, but I, I do like the stuff that he draws out of Worf. I think part of it is is simply the portrayal. Um, you know, I, I just just sort of the, the nuance that Tony Todd brings to it. Sometimes Klingons, I find, like, one note. And it's not as if Kern is a deep character, but literally just the, the acting and the emoting of, uh, of Tony Todd 
brings something to the table that I like say found often lacking in Discovery's Klingons. I I like seeing the repercussions of of Worf siding with the Federation over the Klingons. Like their house fell into you know after all the sort of work had that had been done to sort of rehabilitate it, it seems like it toppled. Uh, you know, for someone like Kern who doesn't seem as able to roll with the punches, go with the flow. As, as Worf is, who doesn't have the Federation as an option, as a viable option, or some other course of action, yeah, of course he's gonna, like, this is, his life got destroyed by Worf. Uh, Worf probably should have at least been thinking about these things in the wake of it more than he did. Well, he said he tried to call him, and he was, like, trying to, like, talk to him, and he couldn't get through. Oh, what was, what was the deal? Like, it was, the phone was busy? He's just, he's just like, I've been trying to message you for months, and you, you haven't responded. Okay, yeah, I mean... So Kern is kind of, it seems like, uh, short-sighted in the way that many Klingons seem to be. Uh, I can imagine that, like, all he felt was, like, sort of bitterness towards his brother and was like, I'm not going to talk to him. Even though it could have presented a solution, he was just too angry about it. And it really adds to the consequence. You know, when in Way of the Warrior, we see, it's almost, I'm probably being, like, uh, melodramatic, but it's, it, all, it makes me think of, like, 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 satan tempting christ in the desert when when mm-hmm. galron is like standing like behind Worf with like his hand on his shoulder he's like think of it Worf, like you by my side like join us in this klingon war against the cardassians and you know all the things i can do for you and your family and your personal glory and Worf turns all that down he's like and, and, and galron makes it very clear you know like if you do this i i will ruin you and then Worf stands by his guns and still does the right thing but now we're seeing the cost of that uh with mm-hmm. with kern Yep, super Deep Space Nine thing to do, uh, and, and and I love that about it. And I, I like that Worf's uh, initial solution is the the very Klingon thing to do, which is he will, uh, pr- pr- you know, assist him in suicide. Um, <laughs> the Mok- Moktavor. Yeah, sometimes a little sketchy on the Klingon front about, like, some, of, some consistency, because I thought that, like, suicide... Well, wait, suicide is okay with them at times, yeah, like if you're like a prisoner of war, you're supposed to kill yourself. But sometimes we yeah. see Klingon prisoners who don't kill themselves, and like the justification is like, "Well, I have like the hope of escape." <laughs> but well, uh, they also in the trial episode that comes up, uh, that um, they were uh, the 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 prosecute the Klingon prosecutor says something about like for a Klingon victory is everything. But like just the previous episode, the Klingons literally just flew away from uh, Dukat and Dukat's ship. Because they considered it less uh, unworthy of them, so I'm like, oh, which is it? Are they are they obsessed with victory or are they obsessed with honorable victory? Uh, like, and I think that does sometimes it's inconsistency, but sometimes I think it re- it's it's the it's meant to reflect that Klingons don't live up to their own ideals. We see that happen all the time. Mm-hmm. The uh, Mach Tavar death ritual, where you have like a family member kill you, yep. in this episode has a different name than the Hegbat. I think it's called ritual that mm. Worf wanted to have Riker perform on him when that barrel fell on his back and like broke his spine. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, that's like typical next generation Worf. It's like a barrel fell on him and now he's like, yeah. Oh, I can't live. And unlike like the deep space nine Worf, who's like kind of a badass. The, the episode opens by the way with him and Dax having their flirty, uh, hollow sweet yep. fights. Yeah. I was the... like, okay, they're not going to waste too much time in, this is this is only the latest of a number of occasions where it seems like 
Well, honestly, she is the aggressor in wanting this relationship to happen, it seems like. And Worf is a little bit of his, mm, 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 that kind of self with uh, all of her, you know, little sort of double entendres or nuances or getting close. But it's it seems like he's he's warming up to the idea, maybe. Ron Moore wanted to have a line of dialogue in here to explain, uh, you know, Counselor Troy and Worf's relationship has ended. That was set up at the end of Next Generation. Unfortunately, that was cut. And I, I, I wish that they just would have clarified because it is something, you know, a lot of fans wonder about. I was like, well, when did Worf and Troy stop being a thing? And, you know, when I was showing all of these episodes to uh, my partner, Antonia, we were going through mm -hmm. and, and kind of like a, a air date order type style and and all of a sudden she's like, like, oh, so Worf moved to Deep Space Nine, but he, is he still dating Troy or did that stop? You know, we don't really know. I, I kind of yeah. wish that they would have, if they just would have had like Kern when he wakes up, he's like, uh, oh, well, Alexander's back on Earth. What about that, that Betazoid lover you took? Where is she, just something like that in there, but. Yeah. Just, they, they broke up, no big, they, they broke up, they're still friends. And I guess they probably, if I had to guess, they probably just were like, there's enough like moving parts in this episode that like, let's not just add one more. You know, um, I did find, you know, when when he was doing the suicide ritual, I was found it sort of surprisingly affecting. And part of it was because Kern was so into it when he said and, and like I kind of like felt a little bit of that Klingon sense of how the world works when he's like, I, I want to he's like, I can't get any more honor in this world. And he's like, I want to reclaim my honor in the next life. I was like, oh, man, that's I get it. I kind of get it. Yeah, uh, Dax goes and ruins things by saving Kern's life. <laughs> <laughs> and I like how Cisco's consistent with how he was in Blood Oath back in season two, where he's like, I've I'm had it with my officers trying to follow Klingon tradition to the point that they're going around killing people. It's like, no, we don't do that on my station. Yeah, Not a lot. I like that, too. I like seeing him kind of blow up at them. And uh, it seems clear, like he's like, I've given his, uh, like a lot of leeway on this. He's like, but come on. <laughs> he's like, you guys are pushing me. <laughs> yeah, literally stabbing dudes. <laughs> there was a lot of other neat moments in there. And there's a, a brotherly moments throughout the episode. One is that he said he's willing to, even if he goes to the underworld of dishonored dead, he's like, he'll still be with his fellow Klingons. Clearly like the loss of the, house of moog as like as as a, as a as a power has has really weighed on him like he feels like an outcast in a way that Worf has kind of gotten used to being that person kern has not mm. um and and i also like he says something at some point he says the sons of moog should never have been separated he's like i think that's what is that after he says like i don't always understand you brother he says that they would have been better off if they were both raised on earth and then they'd yeah. both have like this option to live in the federation or if they had both been raised around Klingons and then they would both just want to die now and they would just die. But because yeah. one was one and the other was the other, they have conflict. Yeah. It seems like the driving force in Kern's life is kind of like, like he, he kind of wants uh, a family. Like he wants, whether it's his, his brother warriors or his literal brother, he wants something uh, and he's, he's not getting it. Um, I, I, I like Kern's uh, unique dilemma again, I think uh, Tony Todd is, is sort of what make, brings it into relief. And I'm glad you pointed out that moment where he says, even if I'm in hell, at least I'll be around other Klingons. Because yeah. that's why I am so forgiving and accepting of the ending. The The idea of let's, let's just erase his mind and he can go live as like this, this new identity. Because his main concern was wanting to exist in Klingon society and be with other Klingons. I think this is an acceptable solution because it does give him that when he takes on this new identity. And, and right goes off as, uh, to be pretend to be this guy's son 
Uh, it's hard to it's hard to quite see Bashir as ever being okay with it, but uh, I think I saw somewhere uh, Ron Moore defending it a little bit uh, that I saw a quote where he was saying that he can imagine a conversation where Worf laid it out that it was culturally the right thing to do for a Klingon and convinced him. That's probably not the most interesting screen time though. Like I'm mostly okay with it. I I, <laughs> I wish they had had a slightly a solution that where when it happened I was like oh wow that's sad but but it feels right whereas when i'm like oh okay uh, <laughs> and keep in mind they were also trying to write it open-ended enough that they would have right. the option to bring kern back in the future true true um uh but yeah it's uh overall like like the part of me that likes kern is like i'm happy that this happened to him it gives a some closure to his story. If we don't see him again, at least I feel like he probably got some sort of decent life out of this. I also would read a book about what happened to him later and if Kern's personality reasserted itself or whatever. Um, you know, Michael Westmore, the the makeup dude in the whole Berman era of Star Trek, he always kept the Klingon head ridges consistent for family members. Everyone in the Duras family has like the same style head ridge. Uh, That's very cool. Worf and Kern have the same one. But when... They they erase his memory to go be Nogra's son. They change they surgically change his head ridges to match Nogra's. Cool. So that he would oh, look cool. like his son. I did son. not notice that. That's a neat that's a nice little detail. I thought it was interesting that this like in the in the overall arc of like Worf's life, that he does decide in this though that Kern's critique of him is right. Like he's like he has lost his connection to the Klingon Empire. He does think in federation ways innately sometimes now he's not always like cling on this and cling on that <laughs> uh, uh he can become that person he felt he said he felt he, he said he felt wharf being that person during the during the ritual suicide attempt uh but but yeah like wharf is like shit he's right <laughs> and that's that's got to be a pretty big thing for him you know it's it will in, inform subsequent stuff uh from here on i assume yeah, he he's a guy who spent a lot of his childhood trying to reconnect and reclaim his Klingon culture and always having to feel like a fish out of water on Earth. And then when he did yeah. try to like go with the Klingons, he felt like a fish out of water there, but he at least tried. I I think he he tries harder than any other Klingon we see to be a good Klingon. And then yep. here he he has to accept like, yeah, I've I've lost that side of my life and he when he looks at the Starfleet badge and he's like this is all I have because that's all he cares about is his duty. Uh, he, he literally is about to move onto like the the defiant because he wants to that's how dedicated he is to his job he wants to live where yeah. he works uh, but yeah that's that's all he has now so he's just really gonna throw himself into his uh his duty of, uh, as a starfleet officer dave are you ready to move on to season four yep. episode 16 let's talk about bar association quark's employees led by rom form a union against quark's unfair labor practices and promptly go on strike this is a, a very uh memorable episode it gets referenced uh, a lot uh these days as uh labor issues continue to be a relevant uh, aspect of of our lives uh dave uh what do you think about this one i was excited to hit this one i'd i'd seen it in the pop cultural and, and meme circles uh when i would see memes that showed rom saying like uh was it workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your chains yes a, a quote from I, uh karl marx's communist manifesto 
I was not sure if I was seeing fan subtitling on that or if this was something that actually occurred. It's just one of those interesting places that we're in where I'm like, sometimes when I see memes, I just don't know. I, uh, sometimes I know the source, sometimes I, I don't. And so that whole time I was like, well, does he really say that? Or is it just that that's kind of, you know, just codifying what he's saying? Um, so I, I was, uh, I had a, uh, it was, it was a great, uh, really fun episode. The ultimate, I'm going to say glow up for Rom, who's been on an arc of becoming more self-determined and, and, uh, self-possessed this whole season and arguably since the show began, but like really he hasn't kind of started getting there until his kids started showing him, I think maybe a little bit, um, of a, of a better path. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know that I love the episode. I thought it was a very good episode, uh, but I did love seeing that for Rob, and I love that it was like, I mean, it is like a seriously pro-union episode, uh, especially because of uh, O'Brien's sort of backing his play. I love that, that Star Trek uh, it, it seems to embrace that. It, there's no like, oh, there's two sides to every story. Oh, that, you know, Quark is kind of right. Like, the only person on his side is... Odo in sadly his most sort of law and order moment. <laughs> because fascism and capitalism go hand in hand. So of course Odo and Quark are uh, on the same page with that. Uh, I, I, yeah. that's a big role of our, you know, real life law enforcement is to break up picket lines and, and stop striking workers and protect the uh, private property of, of the bosses. But yeah, as someone like me, labor, uh, movement as stuff has always been like really near and dear to my heart from like the, the time I was fairly young. Um, I come from a, a small town that had a, a lot of union workers at the plant. I worked out until it shut down in uh, the 2008 recession, but there's a lot of l little details in this one that I, I love. I, I love that. Like they, they bring back Lita who uh, I have always uh, had a huge crush on. I love seeing Bashir and O'Brien uh, doing instead of instead of doing the uh, the the Battle of England in World War Two uh, Hollow Sweet program, they're doing the the Battle of Clontarf. O'Brien actually assumes the role of his ancestor, uh, King Bri the only the only king who actually like for I think twelve years reigned over uh, the the whole island was united one time by like a a, a local Irish dude lita is um because it didn't really they never resolved in the episode she clearly is casually seeing bashir um yeah. they they like showed an interest on both their parts and i and maybe it was made out that they were at the time where but I, I thought she was just like i'd like to come by for an exam and he's like i'd like to examine you and you know it's like it was all this double entendre and then it kind of just disappeared and i was like oh you know i don't know if whatever happened with that but clearly kept seeing each other on the sly they are friends with benefits or just casual uh casual partners no, I, I think i think they're like actual like boyfriend girlfriend but really but still kind of, but still kind of, like kind of casual about it how can that be o'brien is his boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> in all ways that are meaningful o'brien is his boyfriend um the um <laughs> and so so that leads me to my other point which is that if I think about it, like, I understand holodeck is usually meant to be treated as in a kind of lighthearted way. I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, uh, you know, thinks of the holodeck accidents and stuff like that as being like, they should really get rid of that. Um, 
so I don't I don't take it too seriously. But if I were to take it seriously, the fact that he and O'Brien uh, have been off, uh, Bashir and O'Brien have been off slaughtering people in extremely lifelike simulations that they've probably both killed many many people and that in, in ways that would completely feel real, is kind of fucked up. <laughs> That's a video game. You know, it's you when it's you literally pulling a trigger and, and again in a way that feels completely real. You'd feel the gun push back. You'd see spray of blood, presumably. Um, see people on the maybe. I don't know how realistic these battlefields are, but people dying and their guts spilled out. Like it would. Uh, we we don't really do games that are like that uh, yet. Nothing is really truly I think comparable. That's the attempt. I think that's what they 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 strive for. I assume that there must be some sort of fantasy kind of built in a little bit to the holodeck thing, because who would really want to basically who would really want to live war if it really felt like it is on the front lines, seeing friends die. They they are clearly enjoying the glory side of it. So that leads me to believe that there must be a bit of a just like modern video games, a fantasy heroic element, a let's not quite look too closely at the darker stuff again. There's there's no way that being frontline in a in a real sword battle would really feel good after you know like killing too many people. Uh, it seems like it would be very dehumanizing. Well, violent video games come up uh, again in a in a future episode we're going to talk about today. But uh, the the big stuff here, I guess, is with with Rom uh, when he starts off being forced to work when he's sick when he's pouring that concoction into his ear, which I always find hilarious right. every time I see it. Right, and uh, and what do you call it? Quark is being like an extra hard taskmaster because the Bajorans have like a uh, a holiday, it's... like a week where they don't really like indulge in uh, right stuff. You go to Quark's to do. Yeah, their their Lent is going on, and so nobody's at his bar. Business is down, and he's being an extra big boss asshole. Yeah, and he's doing the thing that that so many uh, you know companies do in real life, where they're like, "Oh, our, our profits are down, so I guess we have to take it out on our workers, the people who actually like generate all of this money," and be like, "Oh yeah, either uh, pay cuts or layoffs." I love that the human characters are the ones that like actually seem to care about labor, and Bashir makes the suggestion, and then O'Brien is is the one you know who really steps up and tells him about like oh yeah like my ancestor sean o'brien he was a union man and, and really like inspires rom and then continues to cheerlead for him the whole time like when they have the picket line uh o'brien's up there on the the upper deck you know like giving him like the thumbs up and and make in actually gets in a fight with wharf for yeah. crossing the picket line to go into court this is like how yeah, badass o'brien is like o'brien would would pick a fight with it wasn't like a fight fight. Like we don't, it's funnier because we don't see it. It's all off screen. They play it a touch comically in that tr uh, uh, trouble with tribbles sort of way. Yeah. Uh, like a like a brawl that came out of like some raised uh, you know raised voices and stuff like that. But yeah, that's still a fight with Worf. <laughs> I mean, like we can pick like O'Brien. Like like they, they yell at each other at one point. Like O'Brien puts his hands on Worf. That's like you know you get to the point sometimes in those confrontational situations like you want to show the other guy like you're not afraid to put your hands on him and probably just like pat him on the shoulder or something and then you know Worf overreacted tried to throw O'Brien and then the skinny Bashir comes tries to like get in the way just gets thrown across the table yeah 
Uh, yeah, he'd be the dude who gets pitched around the wrestling ring to uh, show how badass somebody else is in a in a wrestling match. But this is this is what moves Worf into the Defiant. So they they get to uh, you get to establish that that he's he's living on the those little tiny bunks on the Defiant where he listens to Klingon opera that War- that Dax gives him because she cares about him and gives him a very thoughtful gift. Mm-hmm. I love that because they're it's primarily Ferengi workers, like. The word union is like, it's like the worst sort of swear word, oath kind of thing that they could say. They don't even want to say the words. They're terrified of bringing down the, um, what's what's the organization? The F- FCA? F- FCA. And Liquidator Brunt, who we first met what's, in what's season FCA three. What's FCA stand for in this case? Ferengi Commerce... Uh, authority? What's the A? Uh, yeah, Authority. It's, it's, it's Ferengi authority. Commerce Authority. Yeah, um, and, and it, they are right that it does bring it down, but they're, like, terrified of Quark's wrath. And they also, Rom explains earlier, there's a great quote where he's uh, explaining uh, Ferengi philosophy, basically. He says, Ferengi workers don't want to stop the exploitation. They want to become the exploiters. In the way uh, that he says that, the way he delivers that line, you yeah. it's like, this is something that's been taught to him. Like, he went to, like, basically, yeah. like, Sunday school to learn this. He's not like, I'm super into this. He's like... This is how it is, or you know, this is what they say, right? Yeah, like that's like a trained response that's been like indoctrinated into them. Mm-hmm. And and Quark is like, you know, we hear him say like he's supposed to by Ferengi rules not even talk to anybody on strike, you know, like that is like a sort of sin. And indeed, like when you when the FCA shows up, they're like, we're going to punish you to hurt them, and um. Uh, and and they do they like beat the like let some they're not some Nausicaan thugs working for them like kick the shit out of uh, Quark. <laughs> those Nausicans were played by professional dart players because they had to throw those darts into each other. That's the weirdest casting of an alien story <laughs> that I can think of. But yeah, good good to see Nausicans. Good use of the continuity. Yeah, to me the highlight as as far as like dramatically is when. Rom stands up as he's as he's been standing up to Quark off and on for a couple seasons now, but he says something that he says to him he's like I'm not as du- uh, I'm not dumb and you're not half as smart as you think you are. <laughs> uh, I wanted to cheer for Rom there. I was like so happy for him. Well, the the end of this episode it concludes with uh, not only do, are the workers' demands met, and I like them showing that yeah, like strikes work. Like I think. I think labor organization is not only a good thing, but it's a, an essential thing. I think that's the only way we're ever going to, uh, on a massive scale, reform society is is through uh, you, a, a workers' movement. Uh, but in, in this episode, we we get Rom saying, you know what, like it's not good for our relationship as brothers. Uh, you know, for me to work here as your employee, I'm it's not good for me. I'm meant for bigger, greater things. I'm going to go work for the Bajorans and wear this Bajoran uniform and be a maintenance dude on the station. Yeah. Uh, I, another, I was like super happy for him. Um, and I, I liked his kind of a bravado, which still contained some brotherly love where he's like making, he's like, Oh, I'll still be down here to get drinks. And he's like, now get me my snail juice. And then he adds, he's like kind of warmly. He's like, brother, <laughs> um, yeah. like it's both like, uh, endearing. And I'm also like, that's some good payback. Uh, for, like really like that is the biggest victory Rom will ever have in his life, uh, beyond his, his son's, uh, growth, uh, which, which is also pretty amazing. 
And they, they don't really point it out here, but I just want to say that uh, as a maintenance dude, he actually reports to Chief O'Brien now. And we establish Rom's attraction to Lita. So now we have like a little bit of a Rom, Lita, Bashir love triangle. Yeah, going. I was um, uh, not quite sure whether that was just a just a lark for this episode or what. She seemed like she wasn't like completely... Uh, you know, she was a little bit hard to read, you know, she was also kind of doing sort of like sort of character tropes. She was like, you're a brave and great guy. And I'm like, okay, I don't know that she actually has any interest in uh, Rom, but she gave him a kiss, I think. And uh, did like seem to genuinely admire him. I don't know whether she gave him uh, a kiss on the cheek, but Rom got really excited about it. It's the, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, it was, it seemed like it was not too much to her, but was taken as a lot by him, which, you know, uh, even if, uh, even if that's all that ever happens, uh, good for Rom. He deserved a kiss that day. Earlier in the episode, it's kind of gross, but when he, he talks about, like, the reason why his ears are sick is because he's been giving too much self-inflicted umoks. <laughs> and, oh. and when, uh, <laughs> no. when, when she says, who's the lucky female? And he's like, oh, it's just me. And then she says, oh, that's sad. And then he, like, leans his ears forward to her and, and he's, like, sad enough to do something about it. Like the way that she reacts, she's she doesn't like react with disgust, and she's just like, "Oh well, I don't know if Julian would approve." Usually, they would kind of have somebody be like, "Gross, get out of here." Uh, yeah. So I was like, uh, "It at least speaks to a sort of more progressive vibe of this show, moving a little bit away from you know, Ferengi are always just kind of like just the gross butt of the jokes." And we we got more brunt. He didn't do a ton in this episode. Just there to this needed a, a Ferengi bad guy to show up and he filled that role but uh he'll continue to be a, a, a recurring asshole nice. <laughs> played nice. by the that's, great Jeffrey Combs that sounds good I'm I'm down for that and we're gonna get more Jeffrey Combs next week as a, as a different character a new a new Jeffrey Combs character is about to arrive I do not recognize him on site he's he's like kind of invisible to me uh you know I guess that's the makeup and yeah. the acting well let's talk about season four Episode 17, A Session, written by Jane Espenson, who I know from Buffy, Angel, Firefly, yeah. Dollhouse, and even Battlestar Galactica. I did not catch her name. That's that's very cool. This is her only on-screen Star Trek credit. However, she did uh, do some uncredited writing for Next Generation. Um, so, yeah, so glad to see Jane Espenson's inclusion here. But the uh, synopsis reads... A 300-year-old Bajoran ship comes through the wormhole, and its passenger claims that he is the emissary of the prophets. So yeah, this is the one with the the fake emissary. But but mm-hmm. big big in Cisco's arc, because by the end of this episode, Cisco is for the first time fully embraced his role as emissary of the prophets to the Bajoran people. Dave, I know you don't really like the uh, the Bajoran spiritual faith episodes as much as some of the other stuff. How do you feel about this one? I do like sometimes the elements of it that would I was that sort of lead me to think, oh, what you know, what would what would I do in this situation? What would I do if I felt like a prophecy was truly coming to pass? How would I process that? Um, and, and so I kind of like how uh, I've actually enjoyed that Cisco is so clearly reticent. They've brought it up many times over in the past season and uh, even the previous season that he's not comfortable with people on the station. Uh, asking him for you know blessings and things like that he'll do it now but he's like always kind of like kind of going through the motions quickly 
I actually ended up feeling better about his status as the possible emissary after this episode than any other previous episode. Good. Um, and that's something that I'd thought about too. When you, know, when we discussed some of the other stuff or like the episode destiny, where there is like this, you know, the prophet, or like the, the, the prophecy of the three serpents and all that stuff with the wormhole and stuff like that. I, I noticed that, that I, I thought some of your distaste for some of that stuff might be because you obviously hadn't seen the later stuff, or I think they do like kind of clarify it a little bit. And you, you, I, I know in the past you, you would ask me, you know, well, fathery as someone who's not a real spiritual person, how do you get behind all of this faith-based stuff? And I'm like, well, you know, they make it clear like the, the prophets are real aliens that actually, you know, exist and can have, have like this weird, like relationship with time and, and a uh, weird relationship with the Bajorans and stuff. So I, I think, I think they do kind of ground a lot of it more into real world stuff. They just don't play that hand early on. It's something they kind of explain as the show runs its well, course. It's a tricky thing to run because they want the Bajoran spirituality to feel close to earth spirituality. And they don't want to, I know, come across as condescending. They don't want to say, like, all right, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know that the only way that uh, you're like in, in our world, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's real um, or, you know, that basically they don't want to poke at people too hard by saying, you know, you, your religion might just be what would be mythology, you know, or will be mythology in like a few hundred years. They don't. It's an awkward place to get into. You don't want to. You know, that that you is kind of how I think about it. That is how I kind of if I, if I was one of these people on the station, I'd be like, uh, you know, like you Bajorans, like your gods are just kind of like aliens. This isn't that different from like if people wanted to worship Q or something. Yeah. But I mean, I wouldn't run yeah. around saying that, but that's how I would. That's a little but bit it, how like it, you, Jake thought it, about it in, in season one when Jake was like, why are there people so like against uh teaching uh the, the cosmology in school why are there like these bajoran creationists like he didn't he didn't get it either yeah um but yeah the very fact that you like would think like oh i wouldn't go around shouting this in everybody's faces shows what the writers are having to contend with they don't want to shout about it in their audience's face and so 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 i think they've walked a pretty interesting line here and uh part of the way they have forced cisco to embrace of course it is because they saw he saw a worse outcome. Like he's like, if I don't do this, this guy who's going to bring back a caste system, like yeah. a, an it, awful it, caste system, and ruin any chance of Beige or entering the Federation. Yeah, like like there's so many negative things that immediately happen. It's I actually to me I was like, this is why I find religion so troubling. Is that you know although I've got many very progressive religious friends um, that. In the end, I don't feel like when they say, you know, when they'll point to somebody who's using, you know, a religious text to justify bigotry or xenophobia or something like that, and they'll be like, they're doing it wrong. And I'm like, you can't really objectively say that. This whole thing is written in this sort of a poetic spirit, like, you know, allegorical way. It's open to interpretation. Uh, the instructions are convoluted, contradictory, and, and all these things. I don't think that you can you even people I who are using it the way I would prefer that they can truly claim that they are a better interpreter than someone who's using it in a way that I despise. Uh, I know that I'll back them more, but like I don't feel that they truly have a claim to it. And so I thought this episode kind of got to the heart of just like how easily things can go wrong. Something that seemed like a 
you know, we, we've always, Kira's spirituality seems like a very positive thing in her life and it, uh, grounding to her and like, you know, it really centers her and uh, brings some peace that she needs. Uh, absolutely. Like, it's just like real religion can bring peace to people. Um, and yet, on a dime, she is ready to turn, upend her life, try out a caste system, try out a job like being an artist, which she has no affinity for, leave the place that she's been, you know, working at and like, and really fitting in and making a difference, leave that place and lose Bajor to the, like their Federation admission. All of this because of her <laughs> intense religious fervor. And that's I, I love that they they make it a story about like the dangers of of dogma more than anything else. Like like I, I think that's like one of the the big problems with society a lot of times mm -hmm. is it's not so much like like a belief of religion or a practice of religion, but an an adherence to religious dogma, uh, where these things that you would never want to do this on your own. It it, it it clearly like doesn't do any good for anyone, but you're just doing it because some like old book told you to, or the interpretation of some old book told you to. And I like that they show like Kira's you know troubled struggle to do that and when when he he first announces he's bringing back the dajaras and everyone's clapping you see her like like look real sad but she, like she's playing along she claps anyways i i love that they go to that place but i am frustrated they don't take it one step further and have kira actually fulfill that obvious arc and be the one who herself rejects the dogma and i, I yeah you know someone else has to come save her with with Cisco having a, an emissary off, uh, where yeah. they actually go to the prophets and, and ask. I was them. actually thinking Cisco got ex and and the Bajorans got extremely lucky. That guy could have declined him. He could have said, "No, I am the emissary now. I'm not going to go through your dumb test." And he could have contested it. And it seems like he kind of had already kind of gotten the will of the people on his side. So I actually think Cisco and the rest of those guys got super lucky that this dude at least had a, a shred of morality to, to, to be willing to do it. Who, by the way, initially, of course, seems like kind of rather humble, soft-spoken. I'm like, oh, no Kai Wynn vibes about him. He seems all right. And then like a half hour later, he's like, I've made a pact with Kai Wynn. <laughs> God damn it. Um, the, um, he, but like, he certainly seems like fairly harmless early on so much so that Cisco his arc in this is to like oh he's about to get out of his you know the he, he's about to escape having this thing hanging over him and he's like yeah yeah he's probably the one go with him um but by the by the end of it um he is ready is, is assuming this authority and Cisco challenges him and he says, let's go and let the prophets decide for themselves. And I don't know if they've established before, but the prophets actually do seem to like really like Bajor. Like when they tell Cisco, you are of Bajor, we are of Bajor. That's something that becomes like a bigger theme throughout the rest of the show. But they're still kind of like weird aliens because when this guy is like, oh, what, I'm not the emissary? You should have just killed me. You should just let me die. And they're like, oh, we can still do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're still like a little like detached but they they do have like some concern about beige where for whatever i guess maybe just proximity they're just like friendly neighbors you know the wormhole being close to beige where they yeah they, they may see them the sort planet. of like them as the sort of shepherds and the bajorans as as the flock that they tend to although at other times they seem kind of disinterested like when uh cisco was like doing the the time 
umbilical cord going back and forth in the visitor like the prophets didn't really seem to like notice or mind there so i if if my gods could not understand linear time which is so integral to a the standard humanoid lived experience in star trek i wouldn't want to worship them i think that's a disqualifier our gods can't even understand us um but that's not quite the questions that they're wanting to ask in 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 this they they want to they want to walk a line and yeah. uh, you know um they they send him they send him back and they even give him uh a life uh that sort of tweaks the timeline um but conveniently think... doesn't change much other than there's like a new stanza and a poem right you know i did wonder this is the me that is very critical of religion like a priest, a uh, Vedic, died in the just in the the dawn of the like sort of like I'm bringing the caste system back. Did that guy get his life back? <laughs> um, this is one of those things where I'm like, oh, or he was was he just a casualty of uh, a little bit of uh, in, internal religious fighting uh, that uh, that uh, does not exactly show off the merits of Bajoran religion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that was uh, that was unfortunate. But I like that they did that because it 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 gives the story a little bit of teeth. You know, there there are there is yep. danger. I did too. Um, I I think like if I were in Cisco's place, I'd have lots more questions for the prophets. But uh, I on on some level, I, I think I would also consciously or subconsciously try to push those questions away because, um, you know, uh, there is a big advantage to being the emissary. It means that uh, I'm the, the interpreter now. I, he's the interpreter that the Bajorans, uh, who live right next to the wormhole, which is key to the system, uh, are broadly on the Federation side. I mean, there's other reasons too. There's lots more reasons the Federation is very helpful to them. But he spiritually like is a, like is considered like sacrosanct to them. So. There are advantages, and there's reasons why you wouldn't poke the bear too much. So, <laughs> in truth, while I would internally be doing it publicly, I probably would not. I'd probably be doing the same thing Cisco is, which is like, let's just see how it plays out. It's kind of working right now. Don't, don't, don't screw it up. <laughs> it's kind of funny when he thinks he's off the hook of being the emissary, and he's yeah. like, "Finally, I'm just a Starfleet officer. All I have to worry about now is the Klingons and the Dominion." And the Maquis, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, like Deep Space Nine is like the station where you have all these, all these, pro the problems don't go away. You know, they just, sh more and more of them just show up. But yeah. I also like to think that it's probably funny, something that would have happened off screen. You know, Starfleet's always been uncomfortable with Cisco being labeled the emissary and, you, you know, how that works with like the prime directive. Is he like interfering with the inner workings of the society? There, there must be like some admiral back in San Francisco who like gets like the, the report emailed to them. And they see like, oh, Cisco is like no longer considered the emissary. Like that's good. And th then they get like this other email, and it's like, oh, Cisco is now considered the emissary again. And maybe it's like <laughs> Admiral Admiral Clancy from uh from Picard. She's just like the sheer fucking hubris of this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sweating going on uh, in Federation offices uh, in that in the week or two that this episode represents. Um. I do want to comment on the B story because there are a lot of Keiko O'Brien haters in the world. I actually really like Keiko and I think she is so cool in this episode when she's, she's back on the station. She, she, she finished her botany job on Bajor. She's living at home again. Her and Molly are there. She's pregnant. 
O'Brien was a little caught off guard. Like, oh, like, you got pregnant that fast, huh? We just started trying again. I would almost be, like, a little, like, where, like, what else were you doing on Bajor? <laughs> but, uh... Um, yeah, for a minute, I thought that that's where they were going with that. Um, I'm, I was glad to see that the, the story did not try to get into infidelity. But no, it's, it's a story about, like, not having enough time to hang out with your friend and being sad about that. And Keiko is actually a pretty cool wife. Like, she's like, no, you should go make time. Like, the way she she does it is, like, she, like, calls Bashir and is like, O'Brien's really depressed. You should go hang out with him. And she tells O'Brien, like, oh, Bashir is, like, really depressed you should go hang out with them and then like they go and have fun but i mean like, yeah she does like cool stuff like that this is something that the, the writers did because i think they wanted us to think one thing about her and then they wanted to end on a different note sort of dramatically satisfying note but like when she shows up and she's like i was reminded like the last time she showed up she was miserable and like her kid was sick uh she and, the, she and o'brien's kid was sick and then this time when she shows up she's also like kind of like right out the right out of the shuttle she's like not bad news it's good news that they had another that they're having another kid because clearly they were that they wanted at least that possibility she kind of just like dumps it on him like in a sort of rather unceremonious way i guess it's because the kid spoiled it but like it comes off kind of awkwardly it does seem a little bit like oh we as the viewers are about to be deprived of our fun bro stuff with bashir and o'brien and it's because she's kind of come back to complicate his life it's, it's one of those things that like it can feel at least superficially like I like, yes, this is an anti Keiko sort of thing. So then they sort of repair it by the end and they show her. But I think this is kind of why viewers like they do toy with the notion of Keiko, the, you know, the, the friendship destroyer uh, in, in a kind of way that I think is unfair, but speaks to nineties kind of tropey stuff. Um, but yes, as like as as a character, yeah, she comes she comes through in a big way. Even like to the point of like manipulating them a little bit into doing it so that they kind of like won't feel guilty or whatever, you know? Like O'Brien won't feel guilty about not spending more time with her. Let's talk about our final episode of the day. Um, yep. this is a season 4 episode 18, Rules of Engagement. The Klingons try to extradite Worf after he accidentally destroys a transport full of Klingon civilians. Actually, just kidding, he didn't really do that, but that's how, as the synopsis reads. Um, so yeah, this is another uh, courtroom drama. I guess this is the third one we've had on DS9. We've had several throughout the, the course of the Star Trek franchise, but yeah, it's a, a hearing to determine if, if Worf will be extradited to Klingons and face Klingon justice, which we know is a, a dangerous thing from Star Trek VI. Uh, Dave, how do you feel about this one? Uh, as far as like, uh, the way we kind of watch these in little breaking the season up into arcs, I like when I get to go out on what I feel is a very strong episode. And I feel like this week I'm going out on a strong episode, uh, rules of engagement. I liked a lot. Um, I thought Chapak was one of the best Klingon characters I've ever seen. Shrewd and, uh, like really very clever in his manipulations, but also still Still a Klingon. And VV visually looked cool. The actor had a presence to him. Uh, I felt like he was a real threat. Even at the same time, I was like almost kind of taken by his arguments, <laughs> uh, which, which you know, is kind of, kind of something I want in a good uh, case like this is like I want to sometimes see the other side being like, oh, well, geez, that's that's kind of a good point. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was quite happy with it. Good episode. It's so cool to see a Klingon something other than military. Like, you know, yep. what 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 are like uh 
the Klingon like tech support people like, or like, what about like the uh, the 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 Klingon? Um, I guess well, we see a Klingon waiter in the Klingon restaurant, but you know, like the the service industry Klingons. What are they? So here we have like a Klingon attorney, which I guess we saw Worf's supposed to be his grandfather, Colonel Worf, also played by Michael Dorn in Star Trek Six. This is also like a Klingon attorney. And and we see one uh, in Star Trek Enterprise. Sometimes the Klingons are still almost a little too much like warrior Klingons. And I, I, I kind of like it if the warrior ethos comes out in different ways or if it would be seen through different ways, through different vocations in the in the Klingon Empire. And I felt like Chapak was kind of like the culmination of like somebody who both had the guile we would traditionally associate with an attorney um, and... and and yet still had the belligerence and provocative nature of a Klingon. With it, like, he, he thinks about it in terms of we're on a battlefield and I, I need the, the glory of the victory and mm-hmm. uh, all of that stuff. is uh, Yeah, it's all, like, very Klingon. But, yeah, seeing them in, in a, a, just a very different role. And uh, the, you mentioned the actor and, and enjoying the performance. He also showed up on The Next Generation in the Masterpiece Society and then he plays a Malon in Voyager in one of the uh, Malon episodes, oh. so he okay. he does uh, show up in, in Star Trek a little bit more. the The other key thing about this episode is that the way that they shoot the uh, testimony flashbacks, where mm-hmm. the characters, I wouldn't say breaking the fourth wall because they're talking to the they're, they're they're talking to the people in the courtroom, not the audience, but I guess cracking the fourth wall when they're, yeah, they're like talking in their flashbacks. Stylistically, they do turn to the camera, like in the scene that they would be in, and begin talking. It, it reminded me a bit of like the ending of uh, Goodfellas. It's a stylistic device I'm I'm familiar with, but I can't really recall seeing in Star Trek before this. Yeah, I I think it's really neat, and, and this is one directed by Lavar Burton, and he yep. pulls that stuff off pretty well. As a kid, it bothered me because I thought it like <laughs> kind of like broke the style of like that's not how. F- you do flashback stuff in Star Trek. Like, no other Star Trek show did that. So it, I, it, it was a little too weird and experimental for me as a kid. But n- now that I'm, you know, I've o- I'm older, I've watched more movies, and I, I guess I, I, I'm more open-minded to this type of stuff. I, I really enjoy it because it does make things feel fresh and different from all yeah. the various courtroom episodes Star Trek has done. I, I can absolutely see, though, that, yeah, if I had seen it at a younger age, I might have thought, like... Well, they're not taking it 100% seriously, or this is just not how flashbacks are done. Um, I just, it was, you know, just wouldn't quite be ready for that device. And for Star Trek is arguably kind of rather conservative overall, as far as just how it depicts things. It doesn't tend to depict subjective experiences, uh, you know, too strangely. It doesn't get avant garde with its techniques for the most part. So, yeah, something like this, like just pushing the edge a little bit. I thought it was like really fun. And the writers of this episode thought that, uh, you know, I've heard like Iris Stephen Bear and Ron Moore talk about how they, they felt like they kind of dropped the ball because this is supposed to be like a wharf episode and wharf barely says or does anything in it. But I actually think that's what makes it work so well, because a lot of the times when people are uh, put on trial, you know, they don't, they don't <laughs> take the stand or they don't talk very much. You know, their their attorney doesn't want them to, to talk very much. So I think that kind of makes it feel realistic. And LeVar Burton, on the other hand, is actually, like, really happy with this episode. He's, he's quoted as saying that, like, yeah, he really he's very proud of the way it turned out. And I have to agree with LeVar over the writers on, on this one. And <laughs> it's a, a little bit influenced by real-life events when uh, the United States 
naval ship shot down the uh, Iranian civilian airplane. So like in yeah, that time, yeah. like it wasn't like a big trick by the Klingons. Like our ship just straight up blew up a bunch of people for no good right. reason. Right. I think that's a good story to tell. I think that's that's a good event to key off of. Um, even if that's like it wasn't the exact story they that happens in this. This was about the Klingons being duplicitous, um, not uh, the good guy Federation screwing up. But they certainly played with it. They like as Cisco will say at the end. He's like, you got damn lucky um, to, to Worf uh, because, like, he, he happened to make the right call, uh, like, to, to luck into it. Um, but he is like, he also made a bad call. Uh, so, like, you still get the acknowledgement of, of, like, Federation problematic, you know, like, a problematic Federation call or, at the very least, a personal bad call from Worf. But... They, I do agree with you uh, and uh, with LeVar Burton's assessment. I was really happy with the episode. I was skimming those notes on Memory Alpha, and I was kind of shocked to see that the writers didn't like it because I was like, oh, that was a really good episode. Um, I I wonder if people like – if this is like a really well-known episode or anything. You know, I'm always kind of curious about that. Um, and then the writers were like, we really dropped the ball. <laughs> like, yeah, I think I think they just – probably regret the the missed opportunity of giving like Worf more stuff to do. Um, right. but they it, wanted to, his like arc to be real front and center. And I, I think that that's like when you do character driven stories, you can sometimes forget about sometimes the pleasures of plot driven stories. And this was a plot driven story with heavy character beats, but it like, you know, like both things are happening. It's, it's character driven moments throughout, but it, it didn't kind of like, the classical thing where you really see the, the 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 mechanism and the rises and falls of somebody's character arc did get shunted to the background so that, you know, it was also a courtroom drama as, as much. And, you know, uh, Chapak got to shine and Cisco got to shine as, you know, his sort of rival attorney. Uh, they both get to choose some scenery on, in the courtroom. But in my head, because I was only watching what that was presented before me, I wasn't like, this is purely a Worf episode. I just didn't think about it that way. They clearly were. So when Worf, when the final product didn't get that much screen time, it was disappointing to them. But I was like, what a great courtroom episode with meaty moments for Worf. I thought it was and a success. We, we still experienced some of his growing pains about, you know, learning how to become a, uh, a, a commanding officer. And th there are like some frustrations where you're kind of like, oh, Worf, why are you going along with us? Like when... Uh, when when Chapak tries to present the evidence of like Worf's uh, hollow sweet time, yeah, and he's like, "Oh, uh, why can't I submit this, Worf? You don't have anything to hide, do you?" And Cisco's like, "Don't play his games, like, like, like that's very like un unrealistic that someone would, like go along with that." But I guess Worf might be the type of dude who, who would like, "No, I have nothing to hide." You know that Klingon pride that that allows you at the end where Cisco turns that around on Chapak is like, "Oh, well, you know, can I show this uh, this evidence here I got of like this list of names from like another ship?" <laughs> Yeah, I thought that that actually worked kind of neatly, that uh, the, the nature of a Klingon trial would be like kind of like if you say, I dare you, Klingons will always take the bait. Like, that's a good legal tactic for them. They're mm. always like, fine, I don't got nothing to hide. Yeah, do it. Um, and then both sides will do it. It's the it's their weakness as far as uh, a courtroom goes, um, even though they, you know, like arguably it could have won the case for uh, Chapak. Uh, it came very close to doing it. Um, I, 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 I pulled the quote from it where he's 
explaining the Klingon philosophy of, uh, of the incident. He says, uh, we Klingons are not concerned with matters of fact and circumstance. What matters to us is what was in Worf's heart when he gave the order to fire. Was he just a Starfleet officer doing his duty, or was he a Klingon warrior reveling in the battle? Uh, that is why I'm here, because if he was a Klingon lost in the bloodlust of combat, only we can judge him, not you. Like, internally, that probably means that maybe this trial shouldn't have even been happening the way it was because they have very different values <laughs> but but i loved it as a statement we, we do of... that we we have trials where you know we're not we're not so much contesting the facts of like did you did you do this did you pull the trigger here did you do that it's like more about a um an effort to figure out what was the intent like, right. like like criminal intent and that's like a that's a thing right. that's like the klingon way of saying we were trying to like figure out honor intent or bloodlust intent or whatever yeah, it's kind of like a colorful way to it's interesting also that they have a a vulcan who's gonna who's gonna be yeah. the the judge i liked seeing that klingon ethos uh in there and uh, you know when when you had the vulcan judge I kind of thought like oh he's gonna be snapping at her and saying like you vulcans couldn't possibly understand this but he's smarter than that. That's how their depiction of him was, was like, no, nah, he's not going to like go after the judge. He's, he's very gonna... respectful to her. Yeah. When he calls Dax up to testify, they're basically saying like, look, Worf plays like these violent video games. So clearly he's yep. a cold blooded <laughs> killer. Right. But uh, we, we see like uh, a lot more like the, uh, the flirtatious side of the Dax Worf dynamic where they're like, Oh, they're actually like getting like pretty rough and like beating each other. Like she says, like she's been bruised up. She had a broken finger one time. It's mm -hmm. like damn, like Dax plays rough, like uh, like uh, that's uh, we, that that's like foreplay for you know Klingon standards <laughs> yeah. from what was established in Next Generation. But here they it was kind of was kind of a joke in the Next Generation. Here it's like uh, kind of serious and dare I say like kind of sexy the way they handle it in DS Nine. It's another example of DS Nine doing TNG stuff better than TNG did it, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I I think you that's a that's a dead on evaluation of like a lot of stuff. Klingons, Frangi, um, uh, a, a lot of those, a lot of those things just come through better on there. And I liked the ending where Cisco both dresses Worf down and also kind of says, "I'm still backing you." And and then, it, but it's like kind of a, it's a nuanced ending because he's like, "Oh yeah, they're throwing you a party for your win," and Worf's like, "I don't feel like I won," and he's like, "Yeah, well, you got to go put on a." Uh, smile for the troops because that's what it means to be in command and um you gotta suck it up uh klingon life <laughs> is uh, a great deal more complicated in this red uniform yeah yeah that was a neat bit and uh, <laughs> i i kind of felt bad for him because like he got no real like in love from cisco in a way like cisco was backing him and in a lot of ways that was ultimately that but cisco kind of kept on saying like Man, just wait till you get another pip on there. It's you're never gonna get out of it. It's yeah. always you'll, gonna be like you'll this. wish that you went into botany. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the Cisco stuff was cool. He's also probably like really mad at War for like actually like punching <laughs> Chapak and the when when Chapak is basically saying oh, yeah. like uh, like Worf you have no honor you've never had honor you've never been a real Klingon and by the way your son Alexander he's a little bitch too Worf just like attacks him but uh well it's another was... case just like Kern he realized was telling the truth was was onto something when he said that he had lost touch with the Klingons he acknowledges that clocking this dude acting this uh, out in this aggressive way was something he wanted to uh 
and that um, Chapak served it up to him. So Worf is like having like uh, all sorts of moments of self-discovery in these last few episodes. Um, one other thing about that ending is that I really like that Cisco like answers the question. There's kind of like this debate. O'Brien's like, well, I wouldn't have fired. Uh, oh, cause, yeah. Because like O'Brien, I guess like he he's worried about his career, too. So like whatever he says is going to be like on the record. Like, well, you said this at this point. O'Brien's like, yeah, like, no, like I wouldn't have fired. It could have been a civilian ship. The way like, the way Chapak. Uh, got him to confess that I thought was like neat, a neat bit of Klingon legal arguing too. Like yeah, O'Brien was clearly trying not to answer it, and he made him answer it. And I was yeah, like, the, oh. um, the clever maneuvering there. I know he's the bad guy of the episode, but I'm kind of he's so good at like kind of what he does. I'm kind of rooting for him on some level. Whereas Worf says like, no, I would I would do all that again. Yep. Um, you know, like I, I stand by what I did. Cisco actually answers the question at the end of the episode. And he says like, no, that's wrong. Like, even though it would have put your ship at risk, you don't take chances firing on civilians. You know, if, if you're too big of a pussy that you're just going to like shoot at anything that like jumps out at you, you don't need to be wearing this uniform. And I wish that was a mentality that we could uh, hold like a uh, real life uh, uh, authority to when we have a yeah. uh, real life, uh, state-sanctioned well, murder of civilians it should be arguably, like no like your, your job is to put yourself at risk not other people but whatever the the reality that like even the the fantasy of deep space nine showed that it was not followed so they were that's how real it got fathery uh is that uh Worf screwed it up too <laughs> the uh the last thing i guess i have is that O'Brien is such a badass in this episode again because when they ask him like a you know how much combat experience do you have how many how many military incidents have you been involved in and he's like I couldn't count and then because Chapak again you know he he's like I gotta hype this guy up as a big expert so yeah. then like I can really stand by his answer but he's like he's like if you were going to count how many would you say like he knows like O'Brien's gonna like undersell it and then he yeah. can pull out the reveal be like it's even more but O'Brien's just like. I don't know, a hundred, a hundred and fifty, and Chapak is like, no, you've, you've, it's like two hundred and fifty something. He's like, I, you know, O'Brien should be like declared an, an expert on on military space combat, and yeah. it's like O'Brien is still cool for like, it's, I mean, like you're always more of a badass when like you have like this badass accomplishment, like this badass record, but like you're not gonna flex your nuts about it. It's just like other people see it when they see it, you know? Right. There was one other thing I wanted to mention, just a bit, a gag in the episode that I thought was great. That was. The, I actually really like the device of everybody of the people talking directly to the camera throughout the whole thing, but they do immediately like poke a little fun at themselves by having Quark uh, struggling to remember and, and and redoing a scene like three times to try and remember who was talking to who, um, and uh, and I love that they I love that they worked that into it. It gave a nice little break uh, in the episode seriousness. And, and Morn, how how they cut like when he's like, and then Morn turned to her and said, and then Trapak is like, can we please get back to the point at hand? And it's like, no, yes. I wanted to hear Morn talk. Like that that tease, they take it all the way up to like the split instant and then cut away. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Lavar Burton. Yeah, it's a it's um. Uh, I, I got to say, I thought that was a really excellently directed episode that was energetic throughout. So had some experimental techniques, you know, the emotions and, and, and uh, you know, central drama of it came through really strongly. And he clearly, you know, his, his directing uh, helped bring out this really strong performance of the actor playing Chapak. So, uh, yeah, um, a, a great episode to, to wrap on. And I'm, I'm ready for part three to get rolling. Father, is there good stuff in part three? 
Yeah. I mean, well, speaking of O'Brien, we have a we have a big O'Brien episode uh, that we'll we'll talk about next because we're going to go into the the final eight episodes of season four. We one of them's a mirror universe one we've already covered, so we're not going to talk about it. It's more going to be like kind of like the final seven, but with a little bit mirror universe sprinkled in. But yeah, we're going to discuss everything from hard time until the season four finale, broken link so that's all coming up next week and then dave at this point uh you Ooh, is officially... broken link is that is that a changeling reference uh, it might be uh i don't i don't remember i don't remember what happens in that one we'll just have to see it okay um okay <laughs> uh but dave we're at the point now where we're uh we're i, I think over halfway we're, we're slightly over halfway through that, ds9 that, that, that has occurred to me um making progress uh, and yet, it is also, I'm like, god damn, I've watched a lot of shows, and I'm only at the halfway point? These old shows with their 26 episodes. But, uh, yeah, so uh, the the end of season four next week. And until then, as always, live long and prosper, y'all. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at TXTrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.